Hello, my name is Charles Goldfarb, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alexander Aleem, for the AOA podcast, Lessons in Orthopedic Leadership. I'm pleased to welcome Mark Schultzel to the program today. Alexander will provide the official introduction, but I will begin by noting Mark's participation in the Emerging Leaders Program, which is such a great segue into the AOA, and we will focus today on two areas. First, the decision and the process of pursuing an MBA. And we'll also discuss Mark's work outside of traditional medical care and and patient care. So I'll turn it over to Alexander for the introduction. Thanks a lot. We're so happy to have Dr. Schultzel. Dr. Mark Schultzel is an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in shoulder and elbow surgery and is practicing at Synergy Orthopedic Specialists, which is a group in San Diego, California. Mark did his undergraduate at UCSD as well as his medical school before going to Kansas City for residency and then came back to Southern California for fellowship at the Curlin Job Clinic. Dr. Schultzel, as uh, Chuck mentioned, is a member of the Emerging Leaders Program with the AOA, is actively involved with the Team USA Kendo and US Olympic Committee, and has started a company called Ethos Mask in order to help provide masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. He is currently also pursuing a master's in business administration at UCSD. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, welcome. Let's jump right into it. So there's a lot of interesting things to discuss, uh, but let's start with the MBA. I, I, I asked the question of why, because I've been a, someone who's been interested in pursuing an MBA forever. I went so far as to take the GMAT years ago, and it just never happened for me. Tell me how and when you came to the decision to pursue the MBA, what you thought you would get out of it, and, and kind of what you see in the future. Absolutely. So I was in the process of transitioning from a managed care system to starting my own private practice. And I thought that that would be the perfect time to pivot and start an MBA education. Um, I'd always wanted to get involved in the MBA process. I really feel like in medical school, the biggest pain point, and I think the a weakness in the medical school education here currently is that we receive no information about practice management, how to run a practice, even how to read our profit and loss statements or our balance sheets. And so I think it puts us at a disadvantage uh, for those of us who go into private practice. And so I thought it would be useful for that in the very least. Practices often start slow and I was not sure how fast um, the practice would grow. So I thought doing an MBA during that time would be useful to allow the practice to grow, but then also have something else to do during that time while it's growing. The plan has been great. My practice is uh, now growing very rapidly, but uh, as is the MBA projects, so I've, I've completed my first of two years and we've started our capstone projects and things like that. So. It's been a very busy time, but the things that I've learned have been you know, very salient towards my practice and also towards other business ventures. So I, I really think it was a great idea. Can you talk a little bit about, so you think you mentioned it's an executive MBA program, which is a little bit different than maybe some of the traditional MBA programs that we're looking at. And I have some colleagues as well in the medical field that have sort of pursued executive MBAs. Can you speak a little bit about sort of the differences of an executive MBA and why it may be an attractive option for physicians? Yeah, absolutely. So the executive MBA is really more geared towards people who have been working out in industry or who are more in professional career tracks. It really trains you more towards the leadership management you know, side of the business administration, whereas the formal MBA has much more of a focus on the actual nitty gritty of the accounting and the finances and some of the more kind of math related tools. The EMBA does give you a lot of some finances and investment and um, accounting things. So now I can finally read my profit and loss sheet and I understand what a balance sheet is and things like that. You know, no idea before, but the focus really on the leadership development and 
um, I think has ramifications for what we do in the OR and in our practice with, you know, you're leading a team, you're running a clinic, you know, whether you, I think you know it or not, you're doing kind of all those things. You're, you're developing the culture within your practice. Um, as you grow your practice, you're developing your organizational structure, both informally and formally, even that within a hospital. So I think having those, those leadership and kind of organizational strategy understanding really helps to further what you can do. I think that's really well said. When you were considering a program, obviously convenience is part of it, and this is kind of in your hometown, was a lack of, or perhaps more than I appreciate, a focus on health, any part of the decision-making process? And what I mean by that is, is there any emphasis on the healthcare industry in your EMBA program, or does that matter to you? So it, thankfully, UCSD does. Um, you know, I UCSD, yes, it's, it's my local program. I'm a UCSD alum for college and medical school, so I, I love UC San Diego. The, the biggest benefits for me, because I looked at other programs in California and then other programs that were online like Warren or Yale, the biggest draw for UC San Diego was that it actually, you know, pre-COVID had a lot of in-person education, um, which I really appreciated. Perhaps I'm old fashioned, but, and, and I think even more so now that we've been in kind of this required Zoom environment, but I, I think the biggest draw of an MBA education is the networking. So it's not necessarily what you learn, but it's the networking you do. And being able to be in class, meet my classmates, I, I learned so much from all my classmates because they're in fields different from myself. Um, and so that's been, been the biggest draw. And I think in talking to friends of mine who have done MBA programs that are all online, they don't really get that sense of getting to know and network as well. So that was a big draw for me. Um, UC San Diego does have actually a, a quite a good healthcare background um, in their elective classes. So I'm taking a course on blockchain this quarter as it relates to the healthcare and, and you know, global health topics, which are important to me. Um, there's a number of health innovations classes that are also offered as well. But then some of the non-medical topics, I think are also very useful and get you to think outside of the box. And so, especially the, the topics on entrepreneurialism, um, negotiations, I think have, have great applications both in the medical practice and outside of that uh, for those who are doing consultantships or who are doing research or working on projects, even negotiating things like your, with your landlord or you know, purchasing space or buying shares in a corporation, all those things really have applications. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's been a perfect fit for me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about time commitment. You mentioned you, know, you, you sort of chose to do this as you were transitioning to practice, so maybe a little bit more time for orthopedic surgeons or physicians that are in you know, a more mature practice or, or kind of worried about the time commitment. Has that been an issue? And you mentioned your practice is building up. Has it been sort of burning the candle at both ends, so to speak? Yeah, I, th I think that's a great, great question. Um, I, I had that same concern. One of my mentors, I'm, I'm a member of the American Shoulder Elbow Surgeons, and, and one of my mentors is um, Dr. Yamaguchi, um, who you both know from, from WashU, of course, and he had uh, completed an MBA. So I'd asked him about that and asked it as his advice. And he was really encouraging about pursuing the MBA. And when I asked him about time commitment, he really was a, a good sense of, you know, it may be about 20 to 40 hours a week, just really depending on your your program. My program is a, a flexible weekend program. So it was every other weekend. I thought maybe it was about 20 hours a week of time. I think the nice thing about the MBA format is, um, you know, in medicine, we're used to reading hard science and hard data, which sometimes can be rather boring and dry. The case studies that I found are all very interesting. And it, it almost reads like you're almost reading a magazine um, where you, you kind of read these stories and then you kind of get into the, the applications of them. So it's much less of a focus on, on these thick textbooks that are rather droll. So I, I think for me, the time went by really easily. The majority of the time was actually spent on group projects, um, which I think is 
is great for developing that networking again, but the, the time commitment didn't seem that bad in that regards. And I think very manageable so I could take care of it after clinic or on weekends. And, you know, I, I think it's been at the end of the day worth it for sure. Yeah, it's a real concern. I think that your explanation is very helpful. You know, as I have uh, kind of started to do more and more administrative work, I've looked at different programs across the country, whether they be formal MBAs or EMBAs or executive uh, programs, which are shorter term. You know, I think one of the one of the best opportunities actually is closest to home. It's the AOA's Apex. I think it's a certificate in the in leadership, which is pretty cool. I'll plug it here for a second because I think it is an alternative for listeners who may not, you know, if you have younger kids and just don't have the time or the transition that, that Mark uh, described. So the, the Apex program is a 10-month deep dive into leadership development. It's designed for orthopedic surgeons, which, again, I appreciate Mark's perspective on getting the broad view in an EMBA, but there's also some appeal to really getting exactly what you need. Um, this follows what the AOA has done before with Kellogg and the University of Chicago. And so, Apparently, this covers, and again, I'm very intrigued by it, uh, this covers personal leadership, strategic analysis, organizational culture, effective negotiations, and leadership for high-performing teams. So a lot of the things that you would see over a 10-month span, clearly not as deep as the EMBA. So interesting option for some of us. I will remain jealous of uh, Mark's pursuit. Uh, I think it'll never happen for me, but it really is interesting to hear about it. I think there's a, there's definitely an opportunity for you to do it. Um, I know uh, Dr. Abood over at Rothman, you know, is very established in practice, and he's doing uh, a similar pr- program that's at Harvard um, that is kind of a, an apex uh, program as well. And he, in talking to him, he derives great value out of it. So I think for a lot of these projects, it's never too late to start them. I mean, you really think about the return on investment for you individually, you know, for what you want to get out of it in terms of your life and your practice. But then it, it can pay dividends later down the line that I think are, are not always tangible. So I highly encourage it for everybody. I'm really glad that AOA has a, has a program like this. I think it's, it's great to have those options. And I think it's something like, like Mark said, you know, we, probably 20, 30 years ago, a lot of physicians weren't talking about it. Now we're all kind of realizing that it's really a, a key aspect of, of uh, being a physician. You know, you're not only just taking the classes, you seem to be pretty involved with a lot of the uh, organizational efforts at the School of Business, you know, being the cohort president rep for your group and being involved in the Vistage organization. Can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of getting uh, sort of involved in some of those organizations within the School of Business? Absolutely. So um, my, my cohort is relatively small. So and because I'm a, a lifer at UCSD, I, I tend to understand the, the campus quite well. So uh, I ended up becoming the student body president and also the rep for my class. Those are great ways to get involved with leadership in the organization. I think you also have a, a way to make positive change for things that you want to see happen. So, you know, I'm currently organizing uh, pre-COVID, but hopefully uh, if we're through this in time for me to graduate, organizing some exchange programs with some um, companies in Japan. Uh, for which we have some relationships at UC San Diego to try to, to do some, some cross-border exchanges. You know, with Vistage, Vistage and, and uh, YPO are two complementary organizations that exist in the world of, of business schools. And they're basically for, you know, for, for young people coming up in business who want to network in a way where they have a support group. So people they can bounce problems off of that see you at your highs and your lows help you with leadership development. And it's a it's actually a great network of, of people who have been greatly successful who can kind of guide you along the path. So you know, Vistage has been one of my favorite parts of being at the MBA program. Uh, I just, I learn from people with vast experience and you also can see that they're also human too. That, you know, the road, when you see a CEO, 
you automatically assume that they're this automatically successful person that you know has worked hard and probably had a, you know, had a, a great trajectory. You really get to learn that there's a lot of highs and lows and ups and downs on kind of the road to, to where you currently are. Um, and so I think it's, it's great for developing that sense of, of where you are and where you need to go. Yeah, that's super, super helpful and interesting. You know, recall last year, a planned symposium uh, that Ken Yamaguchi was a part of discussing the, the benefits of pursuing an MBA in an academic career and having folks who've done it both ways with or without the MBA. And you've described the tangible benefits of an MBA for you for practice development. And uh, Alexander and I have watched Ken's choices and, you know, Ken is still practicing, you know, one day a week, but four days a week, he's, he's in the real business community. And while your personal decisions and experiences won't be, you know, reflective of what many might choose, do you plan to continue in medicine? Is that your, your goal? You're not planning to go in a totally different direction or are you? I uh, know. So I, I plan to have a full-time practice and, and I, I do now. Um, and it's been, uh, been very rewarding. You know, I think from the managerial standpoint of my practice, I think this has really helped a lot. But additionally, I, I think having the MBA education has also opened a lot of doors for me. So I've already started to be, be offered, um, I think mostly through, through connections through LinkedIn or just through Grapevine, um, not only consultantships with medical device companies, but also medical director positions at very, various healthcare firms. And so I th think that's a great way to do two things. You know, one, I think diversifying your income and revenue and what you do is exciting for, for us insurgents because we're all, you know, I think in medicine, we're all kind of lifelong learners and we're always looking for the next, the next project, the next task. And the, I think you get that sense of success and personal gratification when you complete a task. And I, and I think the, the, personality of physicians has changed now. You know, the, the older school surgeons were happy to hang the shingle and that's what you did. Um, you just worked until you work no longer. You know, for me, I want to have a busy practice, but it's nice having other exciting things to pivot to during the day. You know, there's, there's lots of opportunity also to positively affect the healthcare field through involvement in business. And when you think about it, so many people in the healthcare tech fields and things like that, or in healthcare administration have no medical degrees at all and are making these big decisions for us who are then dispensing the care. I always thought, why not flip the script? We should be the ones making the decisions. We just have no business background to understand how to do it. And so my goal is to try to bridge that gap and be that person in my community or in businesses that I affect that I've got the medical background that I'm on the front lines, I'm doing this, but I also am trying to kind of bring the ball forward to bring us all ahead. Yeah, I like what you said. It resonates with me. I'm sorry, Alex. I'm, I'm jumping at, jumping the gun. I have, I have too many questions. I love this topic. So, um, you know, one of my frustrations, and I think this applies to most academicians, private practitioners may have it a little bit, private practitioners may have it a little bit different. So, you know, if I'm not making widgets, if I'm not seeing patients or doing surgery, then my income is going to be affected. And I watch friends outside of medicine that have a very different life. You know, they, they just, it works differently for them. They're not making widgets, so to speak. And I love patient care. Um, and I will always do that, I think. So your, your, the, the balance that you describe and the continued education that you describe really is appealing. And I think it'll appeal to a lot of our listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, seeing patients is a highlight of my day. And you, you can do both. You can see patients and be busy and have alternative ways that you work. I think it's tough for, for us in medicine. I mean, we spend our entire lives, we give up our youth for training, whereas our, our colleagues are fresh out of college and already making you know, good income and things like that. Um, we've really largely deferred that 
to train on how to take care of each other. You know, and, and in some ways we're actually at a disadvantage for, you know, growing a family, retirement planning, things like that, because we haven't had that opportunity to really develop that. And so, you know, another benefit of this is that you, for me, I, my practice is busy, but I've tailored my practice the way I want it. So I don't have to do like a rat race and see 80 patients in a day. Um, I can see 30 patients in a day and be, and get, spend great time with my patients and have build great relationships and do great surgical care, have great results and happy patients. And I'm not killing myself uh, because I know I have this alternative revenue stream that's going to help take care of my family and I can use to grow. And so I think that's, that is to me the difference. Mark, maybe talk a little bit about that transition. I think you mentioned you were in a managed care practice to start out and then kind of made a decision, which is a scary decision, I think, in today's healthcare climate to go solo. What was sort of the motivation behind that? You mentioned a little bit, you know, with your MBA and with some of the alternative opportunities that you had, you know, maybe financially a little bit more secure to make that decision. Talk a little bit about how that transition happened and and how's it been going so far? Yeah, so I was in a managed care organization. You know, it really wasn't for me. Um, I, uh, I think if you're, I think you have to decide what what type of person you are. Um, so you know, managed care organizations are, I think, very appealing in that they're essentially like a nine to five doctor job. Everything is scheduled for you. You don't pay your overhead. It's you. You go and you just do the time and you collect a paycheck. But your practice is really being run by people that one may not have the education to be able to make effective decisions, which was the case that I experienced, or to not really know what you do or have value for you know, the, the time that we put in and the effort that we put in the care we provide, which I also experienced. And so, you know, and then I think it just comes down to the, to the personal interactions and, and how the group fits with you. You know, just the group that I was in, they weren't, you know, the type of people that I wanted to align myself with in terms of from a professional standpoint. Um, and I, I really felt limited in the quality of care that I could provide. And so I felt that, um, you know, going out solo and then developing a group, um, I can provide the highest quality surgical care that I, you know, personally can, and then, you know, grow with, with like-minded individuals who have that same, you know, passion for great healthcare and high quality service. What it does mean is, you know, is that um, the hustle is real. So you do have to work very hard. Um, I have a, a twin brother who's a colorectal and robotic surgeon. He's the highest volume surgeon on the West Coast. Um, and, you know, I watched him because we, you know, since we're twins, we went parallel paths. And so he built his, his practice out of nothing with no help. And, you know, I watched him, him um, you know, make some mistakes along the way in terms of how to grow the practice. And, you know, he really learned a ton. I mean, he could teach a course in an MBA class about how to build a, a practice because he's been so successful really through trial and error. And, you know, I watched the quality of care that he provides and his fulfillment in his practice. And, you know, he's exhausted at the end of the day, but he goes home happy because he's been able to take really good care of the patients and he has his brand. He has, you know, the, his stamp that he's put on colorectal and robotic surgery for Southern California. Um, and so that I think was, was really appealing, even though there's a lot more work involved in it, just the sense of satisfaction that you get, um, that you've really been able to tangibly see a big change in your patient population has been, is real. And I think worth it to me. Yeah, you know, there are certainly lots and lots of people who are happy in that managed environment, and they do practice more. We are functioning more as commodities, um, and uh, we're interchangeable, I guess, and that doesn't appeal to me. But I also, there are days when, when a defined schedule sounds really, really good. So how is the, this 
private practice, I guess I would say, or started what started as solo practice going, are you still solo or have you uh, added partners or anything on the horizon? Yeah. So I've aligned myself with a group, which is actually what my, my brother did as well. And I think that, um, I think it's really difficult now to be a, a true solo practitioner. I just think from the, from the standpoint of call coverage and I mean, thinking about your life, we're all surgeons and we work hard, but we also want to take a vacation sometime or go for holiday or things like that. And so, you know, from a call cover standpoint, from a group purchasing organization standpoint, so, you know, being able to save, save on your overhead for purchasing goods I, I, and, you know, competitive insurance contracts, I think it really makes a lot of sense to group up. So um, that's why I joined the Synergy Orthopedic Specialist Medical Group. And so we're now the largest orthopedic group in, in San Diego. And so uh, it's great. I have a great internal referral network system with well-respected surgeons in the community who are, you know, involved. They provide great surgical care and, you know, caring, empathetic physicians in a group. And so, um, so I think that's been, been a great way to, to grow my personal practice and then align with like-minded people who, you know, have the same goals and aspirations. Mark, what if we could spend some time talking about some of the new ventures that you've had? You mentioned, you know, some medical director sort of opportunities. You've just uh, started with a medical director with the health, uh, healthcare startup. Talk about that a little bit. So, you know, during the time that I started into private practice, I, um, one big issue that I had found was back in the, you know, when I tried to, to sign up my first case at the, the, one of the local hospitals, I faxed my information in and, uh, like we all do. And, um, didn't hear anything. And th- so I thought, okay, we're good, good to go. Cause I had other, other cases that day. So I showed up for my first case and patient had not been pre-opt at all. None of the orders patient was obviously not NPO anymore. So case got canceled. Patient was upset. I was very embarrassed and disappointed. And I think as the hospital was too. And then I kind of got to thinking we're using this archaic method from the eighties, which has been known to fail a lot to, you know, schedule patients for a life-changing operation for which the patients really plan physically and emotionally and mentally, they have to, you know, maybe have family fly in and all these different things to get ready for surgery. And it just got canceled like that. And I, and so I thought we really need to change this. Um, so I've, I've been starting to work actually as a consultant and then became medical director uh, for a corporation called Rivara. So we've created a kind of a patient engagement and kind of internal communication platform to, which has a, a great healthcare solution just to give surgeons and patients closer access to each other but then improve communication across the board between, you know, all three so that they're no longer silos, but they're now kind of an integrated clinical network. And I think it's been great. It's really improved you know, patient satisfaction. And so it's been really fun to grow a solution from a problem that I saw in, in my own practice. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, it always is tricky to identify a problem work on a solution to a problem, but then it's so rewarding to see it uh, paying off and, you know, addressing the issue. What about your experience with Ethos Mask? When did that launch and what was that about? And is it still going on? Just help us understand that project. Yeah, absolutely. So right when the pandemic started, I think uh, everybody started getting worried about the availability of PPE. You know, I'm, I'm here in San Diego. Um, I saw a lot of my friends in New York City who were really struggling. One of my best friends from childhood is a, a Japanese anesthesiologist who was doing a residency, a second residency uh, over in the Bronx. And, you know, I, I would FaceTime with him and he would tell me stories that he would have the same mask for over two weeks at a time that he would have to wash. They wouldn't be able to change clothes for 18 hours a day. And I think he was a, the only physician in his department left standing who, who had not gotten sick and was running the, the um, COVID ICU as a, as a chief resident. And I, I think 
for me, this was very scary where, you know, one of my best friends is at, at risk and really just doesn't have adequate protection. He didn't even have a N95, he had just a standard surgical mask. And so I thought, well, you know, we're, we also have questions about the quality of where these masks are coming from and things like that. And so I thought, well, what if there was a way to put it together where we can have something that's reusable and safe and still sustainable? The other thing that we noticed was that there, the amount of mask waste and PPE waste is obviously skyrocketed, right? Because these are, you know, designed to be single-use items. And so landfills are getting filled. I'm sure you probably, you all probably walk down the street and you see masks laying on the ground, on the floor, things like that, which, you know, there's a lot of waste. And so, so we used an open source program and developed a 3D printed mask uh, that has a filter front that's that is allowed to, you can actually take a surgical mask or an N95 or really anything and put it in the front. So you can actually use a single surgical mask six times because it can be cut into pieces. And so now you've multiplied the use of your mask or the life of that single mask by six. And then we started to partner with a company that makes N95 filters. And so HEPA filters for your air conditioning actually use the same type of filtration mechanism. And so we bought them in sheets and you know cut them and things like that. And so we, we sold them as mask kits to keep the cost low. So the user just puts together the kit. It's kind of a fun process to make. Have a dorky uh, video on the webpage showing us doing it and trying to copy some of the, the TikTok uh, trends out there. So you can put it together and you customize it. So the mask is fully customizable. So we all have different faces. And so the mask can actually be bent once it's heated and you know conform to your face. It's really comfortable. I have big ears and uh, the mask straps always cut my ears at the end of the day. And so this thing is you know very comfortable has a nice rubber seal that fits to the face. And so my glasses don't fog up and things like that. So it's been a comfortable use. And then it also has been found to be very safe. So we actually did our own fit testing and it, it you know passed 22 out of 22 trials in a fit test. And so that gave us hope that perhaps these can be a nice alternative for people who don't have access. And so um, we started a donation project where it was um, initially we had started using some GoFundMe and then we had expanded it to kind of a buy one, donate one type of a model. And so as a result, we've been able to donate masks by the thousands to you know, UCSD, UC Irvine, back east to Mount Sinai, UVA, George Washington hospitals. Um, and then we've donated to multiple healthcare clinics in underserved areas and out, even over out into Mexico as well. And we've, we've exported some masks to, uh, to some hospitals in Korea and Japan. And so you know, for us, we really wanted to do this as a, as a zero profit venture to donate masks to our, our colleagues who are on the front lines. Um, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, uh, I, you know, thankfully didn't have to be in the, in the hospital. Um, I, I, you know, in San Diego, we have been, you know, knock on wood, pretty lucky up until now. So I wasn't, you know, um, needing to join any, any prone teams or things like that, but I have a lot of colleagues that were. And so I felt like it was just really important to contribute in some way to, to support those who are really fighting hard for us. That's, that's awesome. I mean, that's such a great project and so much initiative and so much creativity with that. I mean, that's really cool. I'm, I'm going to donate to y'all. I mean, that that's such an awesome thing. And, and the, how quick that spread too. I think that's maybe one of the positives of, of the pandemic is kind of seeing some of this ingenuity and collaboration and then just how quickly some of these kind of projects can just kind of steamroll. And that's, that's great of you, Mark. That's, uh, you know, shows, shows a lot of compassion and, uh, real creativity with that. And I'm just thinking about the ear fatigue on the masks too. I was just talking about that with one of my friends and Dr. Goldfarb's got some good TikTok experience too. So uh. <laughs> I love that you put your marketing, clearly you had a marketing class in your first year at your EMBA. Yep. And so you had to, had to work that in. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, for us, we we uh, we joined some competitions that were really aimed at sustainability. So um, we recently won a COVID innovation award with this UN Global Social Innovation Challenge. And uh, the the first question we got was, um, how are you protecting your IP? And our answer was, we're not. It's an open source project. We want everybody to have access to this. And and I think it, it it's really grown. So and you know, we don't want to grow a business to make a bunch of money. Our our purpose for this was really keep our people safe. And so um, I know that I think there's another orthopedic surgeon who's uh, part of OTA, um, young fellow who's also, uh, you know, been doing similar mass projects. I know that, you know, there's even high school groups here in Southern California that are using actually our same mass design and, and modifying it. And, and, and that's what we want. That's that to us is the, is the success. We want as many people distributing some sort of safety device as much as possible just to, to, to give access to those who need it. And so we're, we're really thrilled about it. That's really cool. This has been a this has been a great uh, great discussion. I can't end without talking about Kendo. I've known you for a few years, and I know that's a big passion of yours. How'd you get started with that, and you know how do you uh, stay involved with that? Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time um, in Japan as a child. So in Japan, um, all school, school students do a, a sport, so either you do PE or a traditional martial art. And so we, my my twin brother and I had done different sports. I had done judo, and he had done aikido. Um, and then when we moved back to California and um, we started college at UCSD, there was a kendo class and we had always wanted to try it. And um, so we joined the class and fell in love with it. And then um, we've done it all throughout our training. And now my twin brother is actually the head sensei of the class. And so he went from being kind of a plainclothes guy to now being rather high ranked. I think it's great fun. Um, kendo is, is Japanese fencing for those who don't know. And it's so a way to think about it is, is a full contact fencing with lots of yelling. And so it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. The one thing that I really like about it is it kind of brings all walks of life together. So it's in Japan, it's huge amongst professional organizations. So I did some rotations um, at uh, Dokyo Medical University and Takeo in Japan when I was a, a med student and a resident. And they both schools actually had kendo teams, um, all the police forces, the military, most major corporations like Sony and Honda all have kendo clubs. And so it's, you know, you see it, you know, throughout the society. I think it teaches a lot of skills too. And I think the biggest one is self-confidence. You have to make a lot of loud sounds and, you know, square up with the opponent and things like that. And so it, I think it trains that self-confidence to be secure in yourself. And, um, and so, uh, so I love it. I've, I've been so sad this year though, because I haven't been able to practice since February since COVID started. But I'm really looking forward to the day where I can, uh, you know, see my dojo mates and get back to the gym and do it. First of all, congrats! It sounds like a, a, quite a course uh, moving forward. I love different ways that different sports positively impact our careers, and I think many sports offer something slightly different. But there's no arguing that uh, you know most orthopedics would find this to be a, an obvious statement. But the the positive impact on sports on our career. Uh, for sure. Well, I have totally loved this, uh, this podcast and uh, congratulations on your accomplishments. And uh, I'm sure there are many more to come. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks a lot, Mark. Really appreciate the time. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too.